Well, hopefully, hopefully that is a, a, I know for some of us, that moment just now, it was probably, I don't know, three or four minutes of walking around, interacting, meeting somebody new. Um, for some people, um, that's like the worst time of church, okay? For there's some of us, it's just the way that we're wired. Um, we dread those moments. And so Aiden gave you an out, get a donut, get some coffee, all right? If that's your out and you need it, you got permission to do that. Uh, but really for us, it's very important on Sunday mornings. One of the unique things about East Campus culture that I just love is that you don't, you, most of us don't have to be forced into that moment. In fact, many of you have to, like, we have to cut you off to get you out of here at the end of service. And it's, it's really a beautiful thing. And, and quite honestly, there, there can be a, a, maybe a misconception that many of us think about church that, that only what happens up front here on a Sunday morning is all that matters. And um, that moment in church, what we just did there, is a reminder that's completely not the case. It's important what happens up front, absolutely. Uh, but this is the type of church where when you come, I mean, we're expecting to, to participate, to contribute, everybody here. Everybody has something to offer on a Sunday morning. And so, um, so hopefully for some of us, if that's a terrifying few minutes there, hopefully it's one that you can maybe get used to, okay, as we continue to move along here from one week to the next. Um, if you are new or just visiting us this morning, so glad that you're here. Um, as a church, we have been marching our way through the book of Acts, and we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts this morning. I would encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to go ahead and take it out. If not, there are some in the, the pew rack in the seat ahead of you, or the words, I believe, will be on the screens up here as I read them. But we're going to be looking this morning in Acts chapter 22, and I'm going to start in verse 22. And we're going to read through chapter 23, verse 11. So it's a, it's a good chunk of scripture here, but I uh, believe that if we, in order to understand what God's saying here, we really need to read it in its entirety. And so I'm going to read it for us, and I'll pray, and we'll, we'll just dive right in. Acts 22, starting in verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting, throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they heard, had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God and all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? 
those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful this morning for the opportunity that we have to come together, Lord, and to worship you. Lord, we thank you that we, as we do, we are not alone, Lord. We have a community of people that we are surrounded with that um, likewise have come um, for the, the purpose of worshiping you, Lord. And we're also, Lord, accompanied by your very presence. Lord, your spirit is here among us. And as we um, just right now reflect and consider on your words, Lord, we just ask that your spirit would simply have his way among us as your people. Lord, we expect to encounter the living God this morning. And we just ask that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, that through your word, you would encourage our hearts, that you would comfort us, Lord, that you would show us precisely, Lord, the people that you have made us to be. We are so thankful, Lord, for your word, just as it comes to us this morning. We ask that you would take this word right now, which we believe to be eternal and true, Lord, and might you just write it on our hearts. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you. I've mentioned this before. I think maybe, um, I, I say it quite regularly, so perhaps you've heard it before. I like the idea of camping. I like the idea of camping. I don't know if you can relate. I like the idea of camping, but camping itself can be very difficult. The idea, just consider the idea of camping right now. Beautiful, I mean, as you think about, you know, somebody invites you on a camping trip, think about like your ideal setting. Beautiful scenery surrounded by gorgeous nature. The peacefulness that you might experience of being alone, sort of cut off, off the grid in nature. The thought, maybe, of staying warm by a fire that you built, eating food that you've cooked from this hot flame. Sounds great, doesn't it? It's a great idea, okay? Well, as you know, the reality of camping can be quite difficult, can it not? You have to work hard for your food. Usually it doesn't taste any good, all right? You're, you're eating nasty food, typically, um, you're exposed to the elements. You smell like a weird mixture of campfire and bug killer, all right? Um, it's hard sleeping. You're, there's no signal often for your cell phone. 
can be really frustrating, very difficult. I can honestly say I've never woken up from a night sleeping in a tent and thought to myself for one second, wow, I'm glad I did that. <laughs> never thought it. And if you say you did, I would, I would challenge you right now, okay? The idea of camping is great. The reality of camping is very, very difficult. Well, I think some of us approach or think of our relationship with Christianity in very similar terms. We like the idea of being Christian. But the truth is, being a Christian, following Jesus, can be really, really difficult. It can be hard. We like the idea of being close to God, of being connected in community, maybe living a contemplative life. But the reality is, living the way of Jesus is not easy. It too comes with many, many challenges. There, there are times in our lives when being a Christian is very, very difficult. Standing up for what we believe is one of those times, oftentimes, where we can experience significant challenge and difficulty. We can find ourselves, as we stand up for Jesus, oftentimes rejected. We can find ourselves, as a Christian, standing up for the ways of Christ, feeling alone. I think of maybe students that might be in here right now who feel like, are convinced, you're the only Christian in your school, in your classroom. Nobody else knows what you're about. You feel alone. Trying to be a Christian sometimes in family dynamics and relationships can be really hard when there's other people in your family, maybe close family members, who want nothing to do with, with you because of your relationship with Jesus. It can feel, leave you feeling rejected. Maybe in our neighborhood, maybe in our workplace. Relationships we find can suffer. We can, as we considered last week, find ourselves as we follow Jesus, oftentimes misunderstood, unfairly judged, or even falsely accused. Should not be a surprise. This doesn't surprise Jesus. In fact, he prepared his disciples for just this reality. The truth of the matter is, following the way of Jesus is not always easy. It's not all roses. It can be difficult. Now, in our passage this morning, we're going to consider, and we're sort of in a larger section of the book of Acts where we see this theme just keep coming up over and over and over again, and it's good for us. We need to hear it and be reminded of it over and over and over again of how God encourages us as we follow Jesus, how God, while it is difficult to live the Christian life, God gives us just the encouragement that we need. Now, the, the big idea sort of over this text this morning, I've seen some of the sections in Acts as we get later on in the, in the book here in our study, they, they break it up into some different areas, but as we consider the way that this particular passage is broken up, sort of the big idea, the banner that's gonna hang over the passage is simply this. When we stand for Jesus, he stands with us. Say it one more time. When we stand for Jesus, he stands with us. Now, Paul is going through one hard thing after another. 
as he sort of lays before us sort of this pattern of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, as we've watched his journey through the book of Acts, as he's spreading the gospel, expanding the kingdom of God, he seems almost to be superhuman. He's incredibly bold in his witness. He seems at times almost as if he's just totally unstoppable. Where does he get this source of strength to just continue to go on in the midst of adversity and difficulty? Where does his power come from? We'll explore that and see that today. Now, it's important to see that, we, that as we get into this section of Acts, we see Paul in sort of a different position than what he has been in so far. Through, throughout the book, really since Acts 13, Paul has been on the offensive. Paul has been advancing the gospel, going from one city to the next. We turned into a section of Acts a couple of weeks ago where it was clear that Paul was headed back to Jerusalem, where he finds himself uh, in this section this, this morning in the city of Jerusalem, but he's on the offensive up until about this point, up until really last week, advancing the kingdom from one city to, to the next. He's sort of in control. Things aren't going his way. He leaves the community and goes to another city. But here, Paul's in a different position. He's no longer on the offensive. Now he's on the defensive, all right? We saw last week that he was, he was contained, that he was brought in captive as he gets into Jerusalem. And as a result, he is now on the defensive. He is not necessarily on the offensive. Yet what we see is that whether he's on the offensive or if he's on the defensive, as we see in the passage today, either way, God is at work through him. Paul has the opportunity and seizes the opportunity, regardless of his circumstances, to ensure that the gospel is advancing. Okay, so the first thing that we're going to consider, sort of two main sections as we consider how this, this reality of when we stand for Jesus, he stands with us. The first thing, just two main points. First thing that we'll consider this morning is how in this section does Paul stand for Jesus? How does he stand for Jesus? Well, we see sort of three different scenes. The first is a scene between Paul and his peers. We'll just see. We'll see that in, in verse 22 that Paul is, if you remember from last week, he was falsely accused. We saw that though Paul went to great lengths to demonstrate just how Jewish he was, yet, yet it wasn't good enough. This is going back from last week. And as a result, he was seized. They seized him when he was in the temple. They falsely accused him of, of bringing a Gentile into the temple. The only reason they, they thought he did this is because they saw him with this Gentile earlier in the city. And as a result, they, they stirred up the crowd. His peers did. They stirred up the crowd. Everybody was against Paul because of a lie. Luke tells us, as he tells us, that, that the whole city, as a result, became aroused of what this accusation was. And as a result, the Roman officials had to intervene, eventually arresting Paul. Paul is then given the opportunity to defend himself, addressing his Jewish audience. And this is where we enter into the scene in verse 22. We can see just how helpful sort of his and effective his defense was. Look down at verses 22 and 24. It says, up to this word, they listen to him. So Paul just gives a defense. He tells a story. And up until that point, he has a captive audience. They listen to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out what they were shouting against him like this. So verses 22 to 24, we see sort of the scene that his defense, his speech is not well received. Well, the question we should be asking ourselves is, what went wrong? What did Paul say 
to justify in their minds such a really extreme reaction. It says, up until this word. Now, Paul begins his speech, if you go back at the very beginning to verse 3 of chapter 22, Paul begins his speech by reinforcing his Jewishness. Remember, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, and he starts out by reinforcing, by showing, demonstrating just how Jewish he is. He says, I am a Jew. And then in verses 3 through 5, he goes on to show them just how Jewish he was. He says, he was brought up in Jerusalem just like they were. He studied under their teachers, just like they did. He was zealous for their God, just like they were. And he says all of this while speaking in Aramaic, just like they spoke. He tries to make the point from verses three to five that he's just like them. He's one of them. He's demonstrating a principle that he articulates later in his letter to the church at Corinth. To the Jews, I became a Jew. Why? In order to win the Jews. And as they hear this, 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 this message at the beginning of his speech that he's Jewish, they're tracking. It seems like they have no problem with his Jewishness, right? They're tracking with him. And then in verses 6 to 20, it's all about, Paul goes on to demonstrate his encounter with Jesus, how he met him on the Damascus Road, how he changed him from a, a persecutor of Christianity to a promoter of Christianity. He's telling them his testimony, showing them how Jesus how he met Jesus, and Jesus radically transformed his life. And while they were tracking with him in verses three to five, it seems as though, as he goes on and tells about his encounter with Jesus, even at this point, they seem to be tolerating at least what he has to say. There's no intense reaction at this point, but then, in verse 21, everything changed. They were no longer tracking. They were no longer tolerating what Paul had to say. They became straight livid. What did he say? What caused such a reaction? Well, look at what he said in verse 21. And he said to me, Jesus said to Paul, he's reminding them of what Jesus said to him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. It is at this point that the Jewish audience wants nothing more to do with this man. This confirms their suspicions that he's associating with, with those who are other than they, unlike them, those who are the Gentiles. This confirms that he, what they think, maybe he brought a Gentile into the temple. In fact, it exposes what's really at the heart of the matter. As one scholar puts it, the real issue is not whether Paul defiled the temple, which is what the initial accusation was, but the real issue is whether Judaism was prepared to tolerate the message of Jesus, which was a message for all people that was to be taken to the ends of the earth. You see, the God of the Bible, this is not what they wanted to hear. The God of the Bible is not a tribal God. He is a God who is for all people. He's a God who is for every person. And the, the problem with his Jewish audience is that they were clouded and just immersed in ethnocentricity. 
And the problem with Jesus, with the way of Jesus, with Christianity, is that the way of Christianity, the way of Jesus, is it's not about ethnocentricity. It's not about having the right color of skin or being from the right zip code or speaking the right language or, or being the right part of the world. The way of Jesus is not ethnocentric. It's Jesus-centric. And the way you are judged ultimately is not by the color of your skin, but rather by your relationship with Jesus. And Paul's Jewish audience wanted nothing to do with it. So then, it goes from interacting with his peers to now there's an interaction with the Romans. Things got out of hand. Intervention was needed. The tribune, that is the Roman official scene, the great commotion inserts himself, gets involved. In verse 24, he orders, orders that Paul be brought into the barracks. His intent was that was to get to the bottom of what was going on, what was wrong, what did this guy do? And the only way he could really see to really get to the truth of the matter is by flogging him. This, this form of torture is maybe familiar with Jesus endured for his crucifixion. It, it was a brutal form of torture. Cat of nine tails, bone, metal embedded on the whips, literally would be used to tear the skin off of an individual's back, oftentimes left them paralyzed or even dead. But the point was, I want the truth, and I'm going to beat it out of him. So they get him ready for it. But just as Paul is stretched out and prepared to receive quite possibly the worst whooping that he's gotten yet, in verse 25, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Of course, Paul, being a Roman citizen, knew the answer to the question. That under Roman law, it was illegal to treat a Roman citizen this way without a proper hearing. The centurion, upon hearing Paul's question, immediately puts a stop to the action. Fearing that he and the tribune are approaching dangerous ground, they themselves could be held responsible for breaking the law. This could mean for them, death. So immediately he puts a stop to it. Paul is then confronted in verse 27 by the tribune who can barely believe his ears. This man causing this commotion is a Roman citizen. He's like me. So he asks them, are, are you a Roman citizen? Paul confirms, yes, I am. Still can't believe his ears. It cost me a huge sum of money to get my citizenship. Paul, how did you get yours? Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen by birth. He, he was, whether he was his father maybe paid the sum and he inherited or maybe his grandfather did, we don't necessarily know. But either way, Paul benefits in this situation from disclosing his Roman citizenship. Now, why is this significant? Well, this section where, where Paul is being persecuted Immensely, it's important to recognize that he's not just drawn to suffering for suffering's sake. He's not just drawn. While part of being a follower of Jesus will require suffering, he's not just drawn to suffering for suffering's sake. In, in Romans 13, Paul urges Christians to submit to governing authorities as God's ministers of justice, but he also expected the government to exercise those duties rightly. He expected the government to do justice, to be just. This is the role of the state. 
And Paul appealed to those with power to do the right thing, the honorable thing, the just thing. That is, after all, its purpose. There is a difference, you see, between humbly suffering for Christ and being a victim of injustice. There's a difference. And our land is governed by laws, and we have a right to appeal those laws for protection, to even help influence and shape and change those laws when needed to ensure that justice is properly executed in the land. He's not just suffering for suffering's sake. Now, I might be wondering why now. Why does Paul choose this moment to disclose his Roman citizenship? Why not earlier, when he was initially arrested? He, he could have pulled it out, his sort of get out of the whooping card at that point and played it. Why does he choose right now and not earlier? I think for a couple of reasons. I think, one, because Paul did not want to compromise his mission to his Jewish audience, to his Jewish brothers and sisters. Remember, Paul had been, for, for many chapters leading up to this point, making his way to Jerusalem. He had been wanting to go, longing to go to Jerusalem, even uh, disregarding people's warnings not to go there. What could happen to him? Paul was, was intent on going to Jerusalem. And if he revealed his Roman citizenship with his Jewish audience earlier, there was a risk that he would lose his audience. So I think that's one reason why he waited. But I think there's another reason why he waited. He recognized in this moment, why play the card now? Why show the tribune and the centurion that you're a Roman citizen? Why? Well, because I think Paul recognized that if he didn't, it would mean those men would suffer. Those men likely themselves would die. So Paul concealed it when he felt like it would hurt his mission, when he felt like it was the loving thing to do for his brothers, for his audience, so they could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he revealed it at a moment when he recognized that it meant perhaps saving these two individuals' lives. See, one important thing we have to understand about Paul and his primary motivator in his, all of his missions is that Paul was a man of love. He loved the Lord Jesus. And he recognized that the love that he had for God led him naturally to love his brothers and sisters, to love his neighbor as himself, that these two things are not incompatible. In fact, one shapes and informs the other. Paul was a man who was moved by his love for those around him. And I think we see it very clearly in this section. Standing up for Jesus looks like, in our day and age as well, loving our neighbor as ourself. See, it doesn't just look like, it does look like speaking about Jesus and telling others about the good news of the gospel. But standing up for Jesus in our day and age also looks like standing up for the poor. It also looks like standing up for the weak. It, it also looks like loving those who are different from us. It also looks like loving those who don't want anything to do with us, who persecute us. Paul doesn't see these men in this moment where he's about to receive a flogging as his enemies who need to be de defeated and destroyed. But rather, he sees them as individuals who need to be loved. Third interaction. 
How do we see Paul standing up for Jesus? Well, we see it in his interaction with the council. Finally, having discovered Paul's citizenship, they still determined to get to the bottom of the situation. Another sort of curve and twist in the story, the Roman officials summoned the gathering of the chief priests and the whole Jewish council to have a hearing. We see Paul face challenge once again in verse 30. Look at what it says in, in the way he reacts in verse uh, 1 of chapter 23. And looking intently, this phrase intently is the same word that's used in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascends into heaven and, and the disciples are gazing. They're found gazing into heaven as Christ ascended. A long look. Paul is there. The, the council, the high priests are all before him. And he looks intently in their direction. He gives them a long look. And he says this, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all conscience, good conscience, up to this day. See, Paul, as he gives a defense for what he's doing, is his first thing to do is to appeal to his own character. He, he points to his own life and says, let it speak for itself. I think for us, it's a reminder that when it comes to giving a defense for our faith, our character matters. Some of us are interested in, in winning others for Christ and sharing the gospel and filling our head with facts to help convince other folks. Well, might I suggest to you one of the first things you should do is look at how you conduct your life. If you wanna stand up for Jesus and give a defense for the gospel, consider how you conduct yourself just as a human being, as a good neighbor, as a brother and sister. He points to his character our message and our life must be consistent. Now, immediately upon hearing this, the high priest strikes him, gives orders for the ones keeping him to, to strike him. Seems initially, as you read the text, it seems quite honestly like a bit of an overreaction. All he said was, I've done nothing wrong. Pow. Why such anger? It's totally uncalled for out of line and inconsistent with what the Bible teaches, with what the Old Testament, with what his book teaches. Completely out of line. Why did he act like this? Again, I think there's probably a couple of reasons. I think first and foremost, he's had enough of this man. He's had enough of Paul. He saw him, Paul, as out of step with his tradition, out of step with his way of life. He saw him as a troublemaker who needed to be dealt with. And here he is refusing to admit guilt. He had enough. Another reason was, well, because Ananias was not a good man. He wasn't a good man. According to historical records, he was known for his greed, for his quick temper, for his violence, and for being overly pro-Roman, which I believe is exactly the point that Luke is trying to get at with this scene. He's contrasting the character of these two individuals. On one hand, we have Paul who's saying, look at my life, look at my character, let it speak for itself. And here you have Ananias, who's acting completely inconsistent with the ways of God. And he wants to see a contrast between the two. Now, Paul spits back immediately. In verse 3, look at what it says. So Paul gets hit in the face, unjustly, illegally. And listen to what he says. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? Remember, Ananias just broke the law. And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Do you see the hypocrisy? Do you see the inconsistency in Ananias? Now, Paul is not wrong in what he's saying. Jews painted tombs. 
the right look, he spoke the right language, he wore the right clothes. On the inside, he was rotten, full of decaying truth. And those who would come in contact with him, they risked the threat of themselves being harmed, of themselves being unclean. Yet it's clear that Paul would almost immediately, while what he said was true, it's also clear that he would almost immediately take it back and regret what he said. He loses control. I think this verse, I mean, there's several interpretations of this. I believe, I think, you know, Paul sort of lost control for a moment. He lashed out. I mean, he just got hit in the face. I don't know if any of us would, would operate much differently. And he spit back a truth. It's not consistent, I think, with the way of Jesus. Jesus clearly commands us that when we're reviled, you know, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten in return. And we're supposed to follow in his footsteps. So I think Paul was likely out of line here in what he said. It was true. But I think he he immediately recognizes his missteps. And he quickly recants. Verse 5, and Paul said, sorry, I did not know. When they said, how can you talk to the high priest like that? Paul's immediate response was, I'm so sorry. I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil to the ruler of your people. He immediately points back to the law and says, listen, I'm a good, I want to be a law-abiding citizen. I want to follow the law. There's maybe lots of reasons. Oftentimes people ask, well, how could Paul not have known? Is he saying this sarcastically or is this a legitimate apology? I believe it's a legitimate apology. Lots of reasons he may not have known him. In Galatians, he says his vision wasn't good. Many think he couldn't have recognized him. This is early in the morning, not a lot of light. He's been quickened, he's been summoned quickly. The high priest may not be wearing his official wardrobe. There's lots of reasons why Paul may not have recognized him. I do not think it's sarcastic. I believe it's a sincere apology. See, Paul, over and over again, we see him going to such lengths, even the way he addresses them to be respectful. And unlike Ananias, when he crossed the line, you know what Paul did? He admitted it. He admitted it. When he was wrong, he took responsibility for it. He showed he understood the law and that his heart's intent was to follow the law. So again, I think we see a contrast between these two individuals. Now, I love the fact, this is an unusual sort of scenario to include. I love the fact that, 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 that Luke chooses to include this situation. It shows us that Paul is like us. He's human. That when pressure and challenge, it can easily cause us out of emotion, maybe to say things that we wish we hadn't said. I mean, can you blame him? We are, as Paul is, in constant need of God's grace. Every single one of us. I think this is one of the beauties of the way that, the, that the God wrote the Bible. He put the Bible full of stories of men and women who, who, who did amazing things, but also made huge mistakes along the way, Commuted, committed significant sins. I think of David's adultery and his murder. I think of Jonah's pouting, Peter's denial, one individual after another. The, story, the book is filled with human beings who, like you and me, are in desperate need of God's grace. Now, the scene ends with the people being sort of diverted. Paul lobs up this uh, phrase where he basically points them immediately to the resurrection, knowing that the, the council is divided with Sadducees who don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in the resurrection. And then there's those that are the Pharisees. And instantly, the, because there's a distraction. The, the attention is off of Paul and onto this sort of theological, doctrinal debate between these individuals. 
And it's, it's really a wise tactic out of Paul's move. You know, instantly they start to feud. The Pharisees take his side because he's one of them. The Sadducees are mad, they're, they're disagreeing. And eventually Paul gets uh, taken back into the barracks uh, where he at least for the moment is safe. I think about Paul's day. Paul's day was full of challenge. His challenge was the direct result, whether it was with his peers, whether it was with the Romans, whether it was with the high priest and the council, his challenge, his difficulty, his source of discouragement came because Paul decided repeatedly to stand up for Jesus, to speak out for Jesus, to love like Jesus, to apologize as he should. Paul was committed through his message, through his love, through his character to take a stand with Jesus. Now, remember the big idea. When we stand up for Jesus, Jesus stands with us. Paul had a rough day. Paul found himself this night, by the time it ended, in the barracks alone, having been hit, beaten up, falsely accused, nearly killed. He was in desperate need of encouragement, and the Lord does not disappoint. Look at verse 11, which I think is really the sort of the crown jewel of this section. Verse 11, and Sean, you can put it up there if you don't have it up there already, is um, you just leave it up there. Look what happens as he finds himself in that situation, alone, accused, falsely, mistreated. The following night, the Lord stood by him. The Lord stood by him. Everybody left Paul, but the Lord was with him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Take courage. The Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage. Now, this is not the first time that Paul has been reminded and in need of reminder of the presence of Jesus with him. It's not the first time. If you remember back in Acts 18 when Paul was in Corinth, another time of discouragement, Paul was in need of encouragement. And what happened in verse 9? And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. God drew near to Paul and his moment of discouragement. And this won't be the last time that we see Paul, this, a story of Paul in encountering the risen Jesus in Acts 27, towards the end of the book, Paul is in Rome towards the end of just this whole story. And it says in verse 23 and 24, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Again, another reminder and assurance of God, Jesus' presence with Paul. Now, I love how sort of the challenge increases, and so does the intensity of Jesus' demonstration of his presence with him. And back in 18, when he was in Corinth, it says that he saw a vision of Jesus. 
God drew near to him in the night in a vision. But here, as the discouragement, as the challenge, as the struggle dials up, it says, the Lord stood by him. Not in a vision. See, this is the difference of the book of Acts. This is the, we're about to celebrate in a couple of weeks with Easter and the resurrection. This is not just the difference in the book of Acts. It's the difference for us as humanity. Jesus rose from the dead and he gives his presence to his people as a constant source of courage and comfort and strength. And as we stand for Jesus, he stands with us. Paul's life, as it is modeled after the pattern of Jesus, is not an easy one. Yes, it's full of gospel adventure and joy, but also full of discouragement and suffering. But Jesus is determined to keep Paul aware of his presence with him. Probably, I would guess, when he was at the most weakest, most vulnerable of forgetting who he was, what he was doing, and where Jesus was. Paul sees Jesus right next to him. Jesus stands with him. And the same is true for us, brothers and sisters. Jesus gives himself freely to us. Now, there's something significant. See, the whole, the whole thing for Paul that keeps him going is that he worships a God who stands. And I think the truth, it's, it's the same truth for us. What should keep us going, living the life that God's called us to? We worship a risen Jesus who stands. You know, I was thinking about the, uh, I was thinking of like scenes where people stand up as a shore of like support and solidarity. And the only one that could come to mind was Jerry Maguire. Totally dates me. I'm so sorry. If you remember the story, Jerry Maguire is, you know, got this sort of like conscious thing going on. And he writes a memo to the whole staff. He ends up getting fired. And as he sort of storms out of his workplace that day, he, he's in front of the whole like workforce. This is Tom Cruise standing there. And he's, you know, telling everybody, kind of making a speech and pitch. And I don't remember the details of it. But essentially he says, I'm out of here. Who's going with me? Silence. Everybody remains seated in their little cubicle. Nobody's going with them, right? They want, they like their job and their comfort, right, that it brings. And he's making a passion plea. Nobody looks at his secretary and she's like, I'm sorry, I gotta, I gotta make some money. I, I'm not risking it with you, buddy. And then finally, Renee Zellweger, is that her name? The actress that's the co-star? Stands up and he says, Dorothy, can't remember his name. I mean, at first nobody stands up and he's embarrassed, he's humiliated. He's like, he even says, I, boy, this is really embarrassing. And then all of a sudden, Renee Zellweger says up, stands up and he says, Dorothy, whatever your last name is, let's go. His whole demeanor changes. Because one person standing for, meant, for him meant he was not alone. He had a, a show, a demonstration of support, of solidarity. And for him, that equaled strength. Just recently, our family on spring break went to Selma, Alabama. Where we were able to do a tour throughout Selma. We got to see Edmund Pettus Bridge, where there was a significant Bloody Sunday. Is that... 60-ish years ago that that happened, right? Individuals marching, protesting so that they could exercise their constitutional right to vote. Much resistance, much difficulty, much suffering over and over again. And it was actually the presence of Dr. King coming to Selma and other leaders of the movement who came and joined them. For them, it, it emboldened them to fight. It wasn't gonna be easy, 
but it meant marching. It meant standing together. There's pictures of them standing in the front with people who came from all around the country, standing alongside of them to do the right thing, to stand up for what was right. The presence of those individuals emboldened them. It gave them comfort and strength that whatever they were going through, they weren't going through it alone. How much more can we say that when we recognize, brothers and sisters, that Jesus, the creator of the universe, the, the one who sustains it and holds it all together, who has more control and power than all of the darkness and all of the principalities and evils of this world has to throw at us, that he is with us and on our side. Jesus is a God who stands. He stands with us. He stood for us as he took our place on the cross. He's a standing God. We should be the ones who stand before God, condemned in our sin, yet Christ goes to the cross, and do you know what he does for you? He stands in your place. He, he bears our griefs and carries our sorrows, was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities when he stood in our place on that cross. And as a result, he stands today as our only means to get to God. He's the one who stands in the gap for us, the great reconcile, the one mediator between God and man. What's his name? Jesus, the God who stands. And this very day, as we stand for him, and the way that we speak about him and the way that we stand up for things like injustice and broken things in this world and the way that we stand and stand for Jesus by loving our neighbors and the way that we stand for Jesus by conducting ourselves with character and living a life of holiness and righteousness. When we stand up for Jesus, even in a world that wants nothing to do with it, how do we keep standing? Answer, Jesus stands with us. That's how. We worship a God who is not taking a nap, saying, go get her done. We worship a God who gives us one of the most, the, the most glorious assignment in all of earth. And then you, then you know what he says? And I'm going to be right with you, making it happen. Your, your, your copy of Acts may say at the beginning, the Acts of the Apostles. I'd say wrong heading. The actual heading should be this book that we're reading, the story of the Acts, the early church. Really, it's the Acts of the risen Christ who comes and stands with his people to get his job done. Jesus is standing. As we stand for him, Jesus stands with us. Now, in closing, I've gone over my time. I apologize. Just last couple of words. Jesus wants us to stand for him. Notice that Jesus comes to Paul and he wants to remind him of two things. The first we've covered, his presence is with him. Jesus is standing with Paul. He's not going through this alone, therefore he can take courage. He can take heart. The almighty God of the universe is with him. But the second thing he says is that his work is not done. Paul still has to give testimony. Paul has to continue to stand for Jesus. He's gonna go to Rome where you know what he's gonna have to do? Stand for Jesus. Paul's not finished. He must continue to proclaim his words and demonstrate his life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is headed to Rome through Paul. So the question I wanna leave you with this morning is what is God calling you to? Paul's work wasn't done. He needed the reassurance of the presence of Jesus with him. 
What is God calling you to? Or who is God calling you to? Where in your life is God maybe nudging you this morning? You need to stand up for me. You need to speak out for me. You need to love for me. Is it in your school, in your neighborhood, family members, continue to stand for Jesus? Is it maybe a workplace, somewhere in the city? Maybe it's another country Jesus is nudging you towards. And it may seem, whatever it is that comes to your mind when you think of that question, what is God calling you to? It may seem impossible, and it should. Because apart from the standing of Jesus Christ by your side, it will not happen. But we can be reassured, if we are in Christ, we are not alone. And when you stand with Jesus, he will stand with you. Hudson Taylor was that said it so beautifully, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. So whatever he's calling you to, he will resource you adequately to accomplish it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much this morning for your word um, and just for the reminder that it is today, Lord, that, um, that you're a God who stands, Lord, that you stand with and for your people. Lord, and I pray that, um, that it would just encourage us, Lord, to stand for you, to speak for you, to love for you, to live our lives ultimately for you. We thank you so much that you are, um, even though we're a people that are full of sin, guilt, Lord, you, you don't. Our sin and, and guilt is actually what draws you to us, not repels you from us, Lord. And so we thank you that you offer yourself freely to us and your presence and your power is here standing in our midst now, Lord. We ask these things in your name, amen.